This morning, I'm actually going to be teaching from the book of Acts. So I'll be in Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to look at the first 20 verses. And um, I've titled the message this morning, A Change of Plans. A Change of Plans. So let me just share with you guys a brief story. Um, it's about a church family uh, back in Colorado. They were about to take the trip of a lifetime. Um, they were on their way to Israel. They had been planning this trip for over a year. Um, the itinerary was set, the plans were in place, and the day of travel, um, one of their flights got canceled. So they had to leave six hours earlier than they initially anticipated. So as you can imagine, they were rushing to the airport. I was actually a part of this chaos. I was driving people to the airport about six hours before they had to leave, according to their initial plan. And it was like the scene out of Home Alone 2, I'm not sure if you've seen that movie, Lost in New York, where um, the McAllisters were rushing to the airport. They were flying to Florida, and their son, Kevin McAllister, um, also known as Macaulay Culkin, got on a separate plane, and he ended up flying to New York. And fortunately for the McAllisters, they all ended up back together um, for Christmas. And this church family, you know, despite the inconvenience, despite the change in their plans, um, they made it to Israel safely. They were blessed beyond measure. And then they made their way back safely to Colorado. But so many times in our lives, you know, we make a lot of plans. We make a lot of plans, right? And the Lord will often come in and intervene and change all of those plans for us. And sometimes that change can be uncomfortable. It can be inconvenient. Sometimes we don't really understand what the Lord is doing in our lives. But at the end of the day, the Lord, he has our back. He knows what's best for us. And today, as we look into the Word of God here in Acts chapter 9, what we're going to see is a significant change in the life of Saul of Tarsus. And when you think about this change here that we we're going to read about today, it's probably one of the most significant events that we're going to read about in church history. This change, this conversion of this individual, um, Saul of Tarsus. In fact, it's mentioned three times here in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, chapter 22, as well as in chapter 26. So before I get into, into the word, let me open up in prayer, and then we'll look at this together. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much, Lord God, for today, Lord, and just for the opportunity to come here, Lord, and to share your word, Lord. I thank you so much for this church family, Lord, this church body here. I thank you so much for bringing me here, Lord God, and um, just blessing me, Lord. And I just pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts, Lord, to receive your word that we would leave this place changed, Lord God, that that word would take root in our hearts and in our lives. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my first point this morning is Saul's initial plan, and that's going to look at verses 1 and 2. So Saul's initial plan. In verse 1 and 2, uh, the word says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here what we see is Saul's initial plan. And this is a plan of terror. If you look at Acts chapter 3, verse 8, the word says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, that word havoc there, 
if you look that up in the Greek, it's lumino. And that word means to affix a stigma, to dishonor, spot, defile, to treat shamefully or with injury, to ravage, to devastate, and to ruin. So when you think about Saul of Tarsus, this initial plan that he had, this was a plan of terror. This guy was terrorizing the early church. I mean, you can compare him to maybe an ISIS member or a Taliban member nowadays. He was terrorizing the early church and he was after those that were of the way. So what does that mean of the way? Well, the term of the way is a term that was used to describe early Christians. And when I think about that term, it reminds me of what the Lord says in John 14 verse 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I like how Wearsby puts this. He says, maybe in the mind of Saul, he thought he was doing the Lord a favor by eliminating those that were followers of this fellow named Jesus, who apparently had been um, crucified, who had been buried, and who had risen from the dead. Um, he wanted to eliminate this before he contaminated or destroyed the historic Jewish faith. So maybe in the mind of Saul, he thought he was doing the Lord a favor, but really what he was doing is he was going against the Lord by going after those that were followers of Jesus Christ. So when you think about this plan, this initial plan of terror, like I said earlier, um, we all make a lot of plans, don't we? We make a lot of plans for our lives, and often we don't involve the Lord in those plans. And by his grace, he intervenes and he changes those plans for us. So I recently moved back here to El Paso oh, about five months ago. Um, before I moved back here, I was actually living in Colorado. I lived there for about seven years. And, you know, when I moved out to Colorado from Texas seven years ago, um, I, had a, I had a really big plan. I had a great plan in place. And... Um, you know, fortunately, the Lord changed that plan. But when I moved to Colorado, it was about 2009. So it was about eight years ago then. Um, you know, I had just graduated from Texas Tech. I had received my degree in geophysics. I wanted to be a petroleum geologist. That was my desire. And then I became interested in atmospheric science. So I, I enrolled at Colorado State University uh, for my master's degree and for my PhD in atmospheric science. I guess you could say I went from having my head in the ground to having my head in the clouds. But um, that was my plan. That was my desire. So I, I went out to Colorado to pursue that. And when I finished school, my plan was to become a professor. I wanted to teach at Scripps Institute of Oceanography in San Diego. Or I wanted to be a research scientist at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. But just like Saul of Tarsus, my plan, it wasn't about Jesus. It didn't point to Jesus. It was all about Isaac. It was all about my career was all about what I desired, and it wasn't about the Lord. And because of that, my plan failed, and I'm very thankful for that. And what we're going to see here is Saul of Tarsus's plan. His plan also fails, but it changes for the better. And I'll share more with you all a little bit later how my plan changed for the better as well. So my second point this morning is a change of plans, a change of plans. And that looks at verses 3 through 9. So at, in verse 3 and 4, the word says, as he, speaking of Saul of Tarsus, journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what we see here is that Saul has this encounter with the Lord. Um, in fact, if you look at Acts chapter 22, verse 6, 
the word of God tells us here that this happened around the noon hour. So he was blinded by this light. And when you think about it, it's around noon. Um, when it's noon, when it's midday outside, you know, that's the brightest time of the day, right? That's um, when the, the sun has, you know, the least amount of air or atmosphere to travel through. So it's the brightest time of the day. And you could imagine how much brighter this light was that blinded Saul of Tarsus. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, how cool is the Lord doing this? And the Lord tells him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I love this because when you and I are persecuted, when the church is persecuted for our faith, you know, because we're followers of Jesus Christ, people make fun of you or people put you in a corner. It's not you, it's not me who's being persecuted, but rather it's the Lord who's being persecuted. And he takes it personal. And remember in John 16, 33, the Lord tells us to be of good cheer because he's overcome this world. He's overcome all the difficulties that come with this life and that come in this world. So when you're being persecuted, when I'm being persecuted, when we're facing difficulties, you know, the Lord's well aware of those things. We're not alone. We're not going through these things by ourselves. In verse five, Jesus identifies himself. He says, and he said, speaking of Saul, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So at this point, Saul realizes that, hey, you know, God is not dead. You know, God is, he's here. He's alive. This is real. And the Lord tells him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what's a goad? When you think about a goad, you can think about um, think like maybe about a stick or maybe like a pole that's maybe electrically charged on one end. I know those are the modern day ones, but they use these instruments, these goats to, to herd cattle or to herd a livestock into a direction that the farmer desires to move them. So if I want to move some sheep that way, I'm going to goad them in that direction. So the picture that we have painted here, I love how David Guzik puts this. He says, essentially, Saul is the ox. Jesus is the farmer. Saul is dumb and stubborn, yet valuable, and potentially extremely useful to the master's service. Jesus is goading Saul into the right direction, and the goading causes Saul pain. But instead of submitting to Jesus, Saul is kicking against the goad, and only in increasing his pain by persecuting him. He will see here that, you know, eventually Saul of Tarsus he allows the Lord to go to him in the right direction. But the whole time he's kicking against the Lord. And I think for many of us in this room, there's times where we go against the go, don't we? The Lord's telling us to do a certain thing or he's leading us in a certain direction. But we often think, hey, you know, I think this is better for me if I do this or if I do that. And often we kick against the goad and we make things much more difficult for ourselves than they need to be. When we just need to, you know, be obedient to what the Lord is telling us to do. Now, Saul then asks, you know, what do I do then? And then in verse 6, the Lord tells him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. In verses 7 through 9, the word of God tells us, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days, oh, he was there, he was three days, rather, without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So what we see here, or what we read here, 
is that Saul loses his sight completely. He's completely blinded here. And in fact, he has to be escorted. He's taken by the hand by these individuals that were with him into the city of Damascus, where he fasted for three days. Um, now, the word of God also says here that these individual, individuals that were with him, they heard a voice, but they didn't see anything. They didn't see anyone. And if you look at Acts 26, verse 14, the word of God tells us here that the Lord spoke to Paul, or to Saul rather, in the Hebrew language. Now, the Hebrew language in that time was a very scholarly language, mostly spoken by the religious elite, the, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees. And when you think about Saul of Tarsus, you know, this, was, this guy was a rabbi. He studied under Gamaliel, and we read about that in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. And another language that was spoken was Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew, but it was a very common language. It wasn't a language that was spoken by the scholarly or the religious elite. So some scholars suggest that the individuals that were with Saul probably didn't speak Hebrew, they spoke Aramaic, and maybe didn't completely understand or didn't understand what was being said to Saul. But what we do know and what we do see here is that Saul um, is blinded and his initial plan of terror is changed. And as I mentioned before, when I think about this, this, this change in the life of Saul of Tarsus, um, you know, when I moved to Colorado, I had my plan. I had my initial plan. Now, it wasn't a plan of terror. I didn't go out there to, you know, persecute Christians or those that were followers of Jesus Christ. But, you know, I had plans that were my own plans. And about four or five years ago, I became very involved in the church up there that I was attending. It was Calvary Chapel of Fort Collins. I became involved there. I started doing various things. Um, I think I started doing some ushering. I did the food pantry for a while. I, uh, I helped clean the church. Um, what else did I do? I did a lot of different things. And I think like the pastor would move me around a lot because I wasn't, I guess I wasn't good at any of those things. So like I was kind of being tested around here and there. But um, around that time, uh, you know, the Lord really began uh, doing a work on my heart. Things were kind of being stirred up for me. And about three years ago, uh, the head pastor there, um, David Pierce, he actually did a discipleship course. It was about six months long. And it was a course on, you know, how to study the Word of God, how to teach the Word of God, um, about ministry in general. And I decided to attend that course. It was, um, it was a pretty intense course. Uh, there was a lot in there to, to take in. And around that time, the Lord really began to, to really stir my heart even more so. But I think my blinding moment, like Saul of Tarsus, was maybe around two and a half to about three years ago, um, when the church started to pray corporately as a body. And I'll have to admit, I, I, I really I had a horrible prayer life. I, I don't think I, I didn't pray. I, I really would just seek the Lord. He was my paramedic. I would seek him when I was in trouble. But I really was not seeking the Lord, you know, continuously as I should have been. And, you know, I attended these prayer gatherings and, you know, I went, I, I was very timid. I, I didn't pray out loud at first. And, um, you know, eventually that ministry, it, it gave me the desire and the thirst to pray. And unfortunately for the church, the prayer gatherings, the prayer um, retreats that we have are probably the least attended events because, you know, people, I guess they don't like to pray. Um, but unfortunately, we need to pray because prayer is the backbone of the church. It's, it's, it's our communication with the Lord. It's our dialogue with the Lord. And if we're not speaking to the Lord, how is he going to know 
what our needs are, although he knows what our needs are. We just have to ask him and, and give him our needs, the things that we're worried about. And I can tell you that prayer gathering really, really stirred my heart. And I suddenly began to have a burden for things that I didn't have before. And specifically there in Colorado, it was for a young adult in a college ministry that we didn't have. You know, there we were in a college town and there was no college ministry. And that burden came into my heart through that prayer gathering. And I can tell you when the Lord puts a burden on your heart, it, it's very difficult to get rid of that thing because I tried to get rid of the burden. I tried to ignore it, but, but it was there. It would get even stronger. And as you prayed more, as you sought the Lord more, that burden became even more apparent and you couldn't ignore it anymore. It was almost immobilizing. It was blinding. Now, at that point, I knew the Lord was going to give me a new plan. And what we're going to see here in the next 10 verses is that the Lord gives Saul of Tarsus a new plan as well. So in verses 10 through 17, um, the word says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is very interesting here. What we see, what we read, is that the Lord calls on his disciple, this individual named Ananias. And he tells him, I want you to go out and, and reach out to this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And think about that today. Could you imagine the Lord appearing to you and saying to you, hey, I want you to go meet this person. By the way, he used to be a part of ISIS, or I want you to go and reach this other person. By the way, they used to be a part of the Taliban. You know, they were a terrorist. And, you know, Saul of Tarsus here, like I said, or like the Word of God tells us, he was terrorizing the early church. And here Ananias was aware of this, and he even tells the Lord, but the Lord tells him, but this guy is a chosen vessel of mine. This is an individual whose life has been changed, right? And what I love about Ananias here is, he doesn't pull a Jonah, right? You think about the book of Jonah, right? The Lord commanded Jonah to go and to preach repentance to the Ninevites, right? To go to Assyria and to preach there. And of course, you know the story about Jonah, right? Jonah believed that these individuals deserved God's judgment, right? And fortunately um, for Jonah, well, unfortunately, I guess, you know, he, he boarded the boat to Tarsus, right? And what happened is he ended up on the shore of Nineveh anyways, but it took three days in the belly of a fish, right, for him to get there. His disobedience to the Lord, unfortunately, changed his plans. And what we see here in the life of Saul of Tarsus is his plan changes, but Ananias here, on the other hand, is obedient to the Lord, right? He listens to the Lord, he's obedient, he goes and he reaches out to this individual. And what I love about this is that when Ananias goes to Saul, he calls him Brother Saul, 
So here we see this change in the life of Saul, who's going against the Lord and now is an individual who's a part of the body of Christ. And I love this because I know for many of us in this room, there's probably family members or friends that maybe don't know the Lord right now. And we're praying for them. And sometimes we think it's impossible. Oh, man, I'm going to stop praying for this person because I don't think the Lord's going to reach this person. But the truth of the matter is we have to keep fighting for them. And I always think about what the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1. Um, and it's in verse 37. He tells him, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And when you think about Saul of Tarsus, for many people, this guy was probably impossible to be changed as he was terrorizing them because they were followers of Jesus Christ. So... I love this because it's encouraging to, to see what the Lord is capable of doing. Often we put him in a box, but, you know, the Lord is infinite. He's beyond us, and we often forget that. So what we see here is that Ananias is obedient to the Lord, and he does what he asks him to do. And, you know, obedience is the safest place to be, right? You want to be in God's perfect will. And in verse 18, the word says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So here Saul loses his physical and his spiritual blindness. And then in verses 19 through 20, it says, So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Of God. So here we see this significant change in this life of Saul. He goes from being a persecutor of Jesus to a preacher of Jesus. But notice here that he spent some time with the disciples at Damascus. And when you think about that, it must have been a little bit awkward for those disciples, right? So here you are with this individual who wanted to kill you initially, and now he's spending time with you to learn more about the Lord and to spend time um, in the Lord together. But I love this. We see this change in his life. And as I mentioned to you guys a few minutes ago, you know, about two and a, two and a half years ago to about three years ago, you know, I became overwhelmed with this burden for college and young adults at, at the church I was attending in Colorado. And I remember taking that burden to the pastor and I said, you know, have this burden for college ministry. We don't have one. And of course, the pastor said, well, since you have the burden, you do it. You lead that group. And um, of course, when he said that to me, I, I was, you know, was afraid. I said, I can't do this. I have no ministry experience. Um, I don't know what I'm doing, which was a good thing because I could rely on the Lord for him to do the work. And I took it to prayer once again, and the Lord verified in my heart to start leading this college group. So what I did is I started leading this group. Um, it was mostly fellowship. We didn't have a Bible study at the time. And then the Lord put another burden on my heart. You know, hey, we need to start sharing the word of God in this group. So that's another burden that I brought to the pastor. I said, you know, no one's sharing the word of God. Somebody should come and teach this group. He said, well, then you teach it. This is your burden. You teach the group. The Lord's put it on your heart. So I took it to prayer again. And yeah, the Lord said, all right, you teach that group. So I did. I started teaching and it was pretty awful at first. I'm surprised people came back to hear the teachings, but um, I, I started teaching the word of God. Of course, when I started leading that group, um, I think I had the wrong attitude. I had the wrong mindset. I said to myself, I can do this because it's once a week. I'll teach once a week. I'll acknowledge these people once a week. I'll love them once a week. You know, I'll pray for them once a week. It's once a week. But little by little, I realized that I was very wrong. Ministry is not a once a week thing. You know, it's a 24-7 thing. 
24-7. What I mean by that is I had to spend time with the Lord first to be ministered to in order to minister to other people. And also, I had to spend a lot of time with the Lord um, interceding for the people that I was serving and being available to the people that I was serving. And that's something that was very new to me. That was a big change in my life that the Lord was doing. I realized that life wasn't about Isaac anymore. It was about him, and it was about the people that I was serving. And God is so gracious, though, because he'll give you all that you need to remain faithful to that purpose. You know, he does for Saul of Tarsus. And for me, it was a love, a sacrificial love that I didn't have at the beginning. You know, at the most, I could care for people, but the Lord gives you everything you need to do what he asks you to do. And for me, it was, once again, that sacrificial love. A love that I can describe as a strange love because I still don't understand that love to this day. But it's a love that you need to get over yourself and to serve other people. And um, like I said, it was a love that I didn't have. I didn't ask for it initially, but then I asked for it and then he gave it to me because I said, Lord, I need help. I don't know how to do this. And it was a love that I needed for these young people. And what we see here, like I said, in Saul of Tarsus is this transforming power of the Lord. And for me, once again, it was that love. And I praise the Lord because these young people that I served, that I had the opportunity to serve while I was in Colorado, you know, they, they greatly blessed me and changed my life. People would tell me, man, you're such a blessing to the young adults. But for me, it was the other way around. I was the one that was, you know, what the Lord was doing in their lives and through them was changing my life. And um, suddenly I went from pulling all-nighters, you know, working on my PhD dissertation to pulling all-nighters, interceding for people, which was something that was not who I was. That was not who Isaac was, but suddenly that's who the new person was in the Lord. And um, I can tell you when you intercede for people like that, it, it certainly grows your faith. You know, things that are completely out of your control that these young people are going through that you have no control over. I mean, you just give it to the Lord and you trust that the Lord is going to do what is best for them. That certainly grows your faith. And I, I remember telling the pastor many times, you know, if I ever if I ever have kids, man, when they get that age, I'm going to lose my mind, especially if I have girls, I'm going to lose my mind because um, just so many things that the young people go through that sometimes they hide with a smile or they hide, you know, with laughter, but you, but they're certainly going through some through things, you know. We all remember that when we were younger, going through difficult times, but just trusting in the Lord and, and being available to these young people, it really it changed my life. It changed my perspective as to what my purpose in this world and this life is, and it's to serve the Lord. And it's interesting because at my house, um, when I used to live in Colorado, I had a table in my living room, and it used to be covered in um, all of my my dissertation stuff, all my PhD research, and little by little the table started to get covered with different translations of the Word of God and like different Bible commentaries and different books on ministry. And it's just so symbolic of what the Lord has done and continues to do in my life as He continues to clean, you know, the things out of my life that don't need to be there. And um, I suddenly became, you know, I, I went there as a researcher in the field of atmospheric science to now a researcher in the Word of God and studying His Word and seeking His, his counsel and His will for my life. And there's one verse that I always think about. It's in Psalm 19.1. And here the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Now, like I said, I moved to Colorado to study the heavens and the firmament, the very things, atmospheric science, the very things that declare God's glory. 
But the Lord said, no, that's, that's not enough. You're not just going to go study those things. You're going to be used to declare my glory. You're not just going to study the things that declare my glory. You're going to be used to declare my glory. And what do I mean by that? Well, what the Lord used me for there and what he's continuously using me now for is to declare that gospel message, right? That Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, right? You put your faith in that message. You recognize that you're a sinner. You need a savior and you repent of your sin. That's what makes you righteous in the sight of God. And that's what leads to salvation. And salvation is what brings God glory. So the Lord is using me for that now. And he's continuously using me in that way. And, you know, it's just incredible how the Lord changes everything for you. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's inconvenient. But at the end of the day, it's the best thing for you. You realize, wow, I was wasting so much time when I could have been doing the Lord's work. I could have been building his kingdom. And I find myself in a place now where I don't see myself doing anything else but serving the Lord, whatever capacity that is. Um, I'm not the best at everything, but I'm available and I'll do the best that I can in the Lord to, to do those things. And, you know, I've tasted, I've seen the goodness of the Lord. And recently, the Lord has changed my plan again. Here I am in El Paso, Texas, my hometown. I hadn't been here in like 13 years. And unfortunately, uh, my mother, she had a stroke in December and that's what brought me back to El Paso. And maybe at a later time, I'll share more with you what the Lord's doing in my life now through this circumstance. But um, here I am, I'm serving alongside uh, Pastor Angel here at Fresh Vision. And um, you know, the Lord still has a burden, has put a burden on my heart for youth and young adults. and. Um, that's what I'm going to pursue here in El Paso while I'm here, continue to serve the Lord in the capacity that I can. But there's a couple of things I want us to remember from all of this this morning. Four things in closing, you know, as we make plans for our lives, as we seek the Lord's will for our lives. You know, I always told the young people when I was in Colorado, I told them, you know, you deserve the best for your life. You deserve the best. And the best thing for you is God's perfect will. Being in that perfect will of God is the safest place to be. And I believe we have tools to, to find God's will for our lives. And of course, we know that our purpose, our calling, is to go into the world and to make disciples of every nation and to preach the gospel to every creature. Um, however, we're all going to do it in different ways, right? We all have different gifts. We all have different talents. Now, the four tools that we have that I believe we need to utilize, number one, we have prayer. Prayer is, once again, our dialogue to the Lord. This is our communication with the Lord. And like I said before, this is a tool that we don't use enough. We don't utilize enough. This is the backbone of the church. First Thessalonians 5, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. And I can tell you, if I hadn't joined that prayer gathering, I don't think I would have had that burden for young adults. I don't think I would have listened to the Lord's calling if it weren't for that prayer gathering. I'm so grateful for prayer in my life. And we need to utilize that more. Secondly, we have the word of God, right? The word of God, this is how the Lord speaks to us. This is how we hear from the Lord. And the word of God is a lamp onto our feet. And when you think about the word of God, you know, it's not enough just to know the word of God, to hear the word of God, to read it. We have to allow the word to become flesh in our life, don't we? And you think about the gospel of John, for example. John 1, 1, the word of God says, In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and God was the word. And then in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt or, or tabernacled among us. So when you think about it, what does it mean for the word to become flesh? Well, what does that look like? It's, it's Jesus, right? The word becoming flesh is Jesus. That's what we need to look like more and more as the word becomes flesh 
in our lives. That should be our goal. That should be our desire as believers. Thirdly, we have the power and the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? I think about uh, the Gospel of Luke, for example, chapter 4. Remember when Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, right? And there he was, he was tempted by the enemy. But because he was filled and he was led by the Holy Spirit, he was able to escape the tactics of the enemy. And the same spirit that was in the Lord then is the same spirit that lives in you and in me now. So we have accessibility to the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. We just have to ask him to fill us afresh. Sometimes we need fresh fillings, right? We, we leak the Holy Spirit sometimes. We need to be filled afresh and led by the Holy Spirit. Lastly, we have fellowship. And I think this is critical because sometimes we go about doing the things in this life and we do it alone. But we need one another. We need our brothers. We need our sisters in Christ. Um, you know, if you want godly counsel, are you going to get that in the world? Probably not. You're going to get godly counsel in the body of Christ. Now, does that mean we stay away from the world? We stay away from the darkness? No, we, we got to be that light in the darkness. But you got to refuel. You got to recharge in the body and in the word and in the Lord. So we need one another. Now, one thing I remember I would tell the young people, I would tell them, you know, look around, look at each other, look at each other in this room. Um, you know, they would be like, okay, I'll look at each other. And I would tell them, you know, I, I pray and I hope that you don't just think about each other when we gather, you know, on Mondays. That you don't just acknowledge each other or pray for each other only on Mondays. But it's something that you do throughout the week. And as a church body, that's something we should do throughout, throughout the week as well. Is we should acknowledge each other. We should pray for each other. We should check up on each other. You know, have accountability amongst one another. Because we're going through all of this together. It's a Christian race that we're running together. We're not running alone. So fellowship is very, very important. Now, these four elements, like I said, are accessible to us. They're available to us. We have to utilize these tools. Prayer, the word of God, the power in the person of the Holy Spirit, and then fellowship in the body. And when we utilize those tools, you know, the Lord, um, it allows us to not kick against the goats. It allows us to, to, to see, you know, where the Lord is leading us. Maybe we don't see the end point, but we can feel confident and peaceful wherever the Lord is leading us because we're in him and we're being led by him. And what the Lord has done here in the life of Saul of Tarsus, you know, he's also done in my life. You know, I'm not saying that I'm perfected. I'm, man, I'm, I'm a disaster. I'm still being put together piece by piece. But what I, what I love about the Lord is his transforming power. You know, he was able to transform me from, you know, a doctor of philosophy PhD to a praying heaven down PhD. So that's where I find myself in life right now. Just serving the Lord, doing the best that I can to be that example for him. And... I know that, like I said before, there's so many people in our lives that maybe they don't know who the Lord is, but he's able. He's able to do things that are beyond us. So keep fighting, keep praying for these individuals. And um, all we have to do is just give the Lord our world and he'll take it and he'll lead us wherever he desires to take us. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. And um, we pray, Lord God, that you just continue to shape us and to mold us into your likeness, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you so much for the work that you did in the life of Saul of Tarsus, Lord God, and for what you're doing, Lord God, in the life of all the believers, Lord. We pray for this church body, Lord. Continue to grow the body here, Lord God. Continue to just use us mightily in this community, Lord God. Open up the doors. Help us to see the needs, Lord. And we pray that you continue to guide us, Lord God. Help us and give us the desire for your word, Lord God. Give us a desire for prayer. Give us a desire for fellowship and to be led and filled by your Holy Spirit, Lord. 
That way we can be used mightily, Lord God, just like Saul of Tarsus. His initial plans changed, Lord God, but you changed them for the better, Lord. And we pray that you continue to change our plans, Lord God, the things that don't bring you glory, Lord God, the things that are not going in your direction. Remove them from our lives, Lord God. Make us pure. Clear us, Lord God. Help us to decrease so that you can increase in our lives, Lord. We praise you and we thank you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.